If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Once the fashion of a postmodern age, moral relativism has always had its detractors, particularly from those with a religious inclination. But now, a new breed of celebrity thinkers with an atheist bent are making claims for the existence of absolute moral truths, even though they would deride the strict moral codes of others. Critics argue that, like authoritarian moralists of the past, they use so-called objective morality to shore up their own prejudices and silence dissent. Joining us to debate objective morality in a postmodern age are firebrand philosopher Slavoj Žižek, best-selling author of Zed, Joanna Kavanagh, and philosopher and author of Truth, Simon Blackburn. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Ruth Chang. So without further ado, what I'd like to do now is to pose a question to each of our panelists, and they each get... Three minutes, three minutes, Slavoj, three minutes. <laughs> Sorry, I have some trouble hearing you. Yeah. I heard 30, but okay. <laughs> to give us their reaction to the question. Here's the question. Should we welcome the return of an object of morality or is it authoritarian fantasy? I'm gonna start with Slavoj. Very briefly, I hope I will have some chance later to go on. I, I first, it all depends on what you mean by objective morality and moral relativism. Of, uh, uh, I think there is a third term here. If I may even refer briefly to a philosopher with whom I didn't agree, Karl Popper, you know, he introduced the term of the third world. Like objective facts of a symbolic order, which in some sense are not part of external reality, but nonetheless, it's false to subjectivize them, to say these are just emotions and so on. In this sense, I think uh, morality, to work as morality, has to be minimally objective. You cannot have morality which for which you claim that it directly just expresses your attitudes, your whatever, but just to give uh, two, three hints into what direction I want to go. There are big historical changes, but I think that although there are many rules which in some way or other are common to different epochs, what always 
fascinated me is that every objective system of not just morality but customs and so on always relies on unwritten, implicit, unwritten rules, which are absolutely crucial. And I will conclude with just two examples which are my favorite. One is, did you notice how often things are prohibited, but the system itself between the lines solicits you to violate the prohibition. Like I had a very vulgar experience, sorry to fall so low, with my father when I was young, he warned me against contacts too young with women and so on. And then he inquired, but did you already do it? What kind of a man are you? And so on. <laughs> so following you know, this ambiguity and much more interesting, with which I will conclude, the opposite version of things that we are solicited even to do, you can do it, on condition that you don't <laughs> do it. For example, my favorite, ic okay, ordinary and extreme example, then I stop. Ordinary example, do you have, I'm not talking about the traitors, England, here in Wales, do you also have this manner, I invite you to dinner, and it's clear that I will pay, but when the bill arrives, if I invited you, you have to insist for some time, no, no, let's share it, and so on. We both know that at the end I will pay. But the guy has to make an offer which we know will be refused. And uh, my favorite example here is, it really happened in, so sorry, old Stalinist Soviet Union. In Soviet Union, it was not only, of course, prohibited to criticize Stalin. It was even more prohibited to publicly announce this prohibition. It happened at one session that a guy raised hand, Comrade Stalin is wrong here. Then another guy raised his hand and said, are you crazy? We don't speak like this here. You don't criticize Stalin. The second guy disappeared much faster <laughs> than the first one. You know, this is very elegant thing. Prohibition itself is prohibited. All this just to complicate things. Thanks. Brilliant. That does complicate things. Um, <laughs> I'm going to turn things over now to Simon, since you said, oh, we mustn't think of morality, moral claims, moral truths as expressions of attitudes we have. Simon, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, that's exactly how I do think about them. And, uh, Sorry, what? They are expressions, or you agree with me? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that morality is an expression of attitude. It's not just your personal attitude, usually. It's at least an attitude which you're soliciting other people to agree with. So if I say that Boris Johnson's a bad thing, I think if I'm sincere, which I would be, it would be an expression of my attitude to the way he behaves. Um, but I, in expressing it, I'm not simply emoting or sounding off. The public act is partly one of trying to solicit agreement. And if you disagree with me, I'd expect you to say why, and then I'd say why I think he's a bad thing, and we'd to and fro. And the point of that depends upon arriving at this sort of, sort of social consensus. Now, we may know that we can't get social consensus, I know that there are people in the Conservative Party, 
Tory backbenchers who are not going to agree with me that Boris Johnson is a bad thing, not at least until he's lost his premiership, um, then they might start agreeing. Um, but the point is to express an attitude and solicit agreement for that attitude. Now, people say, ah, oh, but where's the objectivity in that? Well, objectivity is its a very interesting word. People think of morals as either objective or subjective. I don't think like that. I think that an opinion becomes objective by being pursued objectively. And that means um, by, by looking at the evidence, by being curious about what might bear on it, um, but by even as pa Karl Popper used to emphasize, um, being pleased to find refutations of it, being pleased to find uh, things that don't entirely bear it out and which then force you to think again. In other words, it's as if we've got an onboard critic which is itself worried about our own opinions. And the desire to improve those opinions and to uh, back them as best we can, that counts as objectivity. You all know that's okay. Uh, if, you, if any of you are committed, committed you know, suppose you're arrested for a crime which you didn't commit, you're going to be praying that the police inquiry into it is objective. So the point is, the point is it's, the, it's the evidence finding, the curiosity, the willingness to be open-minded, which is the sign of objectivity. And in that sense, some, are, some opinions are much more objective than others. The opinion that Boris Johnson is a bad thing is entirely objective. There's no conceivable, dis <laughs> no conceivable dissent from it, except from, well, the people I've already mentioned. Have I gone on for three minutes? Okay. Good. <laughs> Wonderful. No. Okay, so now let's have our novelist weigh in. Joanna. Thank you. I'm just reminded of the old joke, you know, of course there are objective morals, whatever I say so. I mean, it's that kind of... You know, within this intrinsic premise, there's a sort of incredible, reasonable quorum here. It's wonderful. And then this other world of authoritarian fantasy, which he mentions. So I guess if we think about that, why in the debate is authoritarian fantasy being cited? And this sort of adamantine view. And I was thinking often when I think about morality, I remember this poem that W.B. Yeats wrote in 1919, The Second Coming, and it's written just after the complete slaughter and carnage of World War I, this absolute apocalypse. And he is talking about things fall apart, the center cannot hold, and mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. But he also writes these weird lines, which if you read them, I remember reading it for GCSE, and they say, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. And you think, well, surely it's really good to be passionate and intense. And so, isn't that a good thing to feel passion and intensity? Why would that be the worst? And why would the best lack conviction? And I think what Yeats means is the, the real maniacs who take control and say, we've got the absolute moral order sorted. No one can demur. And everyone's got to do what we say because we're in touch with a sort of higher cause or power. And they're the ones that, in a way, paradoxically drive everything into this kind of anarchy. And so as both my colleagues were saying, there's a, another tradition, which is a very ancient tradition of how do we live well, how do we live a good life, with, which goes way back to the earliest philosophical literary text that we know of, one of the earliest, the Epic of Gilgamesh from 2,000 years before Christ. So it's a kind of debate that's gone on forever. 
And then on the other side, you have this kind of maniacal fervor, this passionate intensity that goes into sort of febrile intensity and what that does to the debate. And of course, novelists are just sort of waffling around in the center somewhere trying to write these novels which express everything, this kind of whole gamut of views. And I think Iris Murdoch had a good view of this. She talked about that you need to express a moral position because otherwise you're into what Yeats talks about. You lose all conviction. You lose heart. You can't do anything. You can't do anything against these people with this fervor. So she argued that you should try for a kind of openness, a porous moral position was her view. And Adrian Rich said the same, that there's a moral responsibility in not allowing others to just talk and name everything for you. You try and name and talk yourself, but you also try and let others do that as well. So I'd argue fewer apocalypses, uh, fewer maniacs, um, quite a lot of novels, if that's all right, and yeah, a sort of porous moral view of things. Okay, let's, let's dig a little deeper, see if we can't sharpen what's being said. Let me raise another question for you. Is objective morality even possible? I'd like to start with Joanna. Well, so I, I mean, I think Simon was defining, he was saying this idea of, you know, what, what we might define as, and Popper's idea that Slavoj mentioned as well, this kind of symbolic order. Because otherwise, you get into this adamantine dictionary definition, which would be something that exists beyond feelings and judgment. And actually, within a moral question, of course, our feelings and experiences and judgments are very fundamental to that. So I think this question then of how would you divest your moral order from all feeling judgment? I mean, when you meet someone, you feel, do I trust them? You know, is this something I, you know, someone I want to talk to? And you can be wrong. So if you're thinking about moral texts like Pride and Prejudice, Austin, that's all about how you can meet someone and your judgment is wrong. You know, Lizzie Bennet doesn't judge Darcy right at first because he's rude and he won't dance with her and he messes up her sister's love life. So initially she thinks he's bad, but then she gets more information, she makes a different judgment. But there's still the sort of sense of what might constitute a person is is maintained these values that Slavoj was talking about that we do expect from others. So I think if you if you mean something, the, the thing about this debate is, and my philosophical colleagues should really talk about this, but there's a kind of, it's like William James said, you have the sort of absolutist on one side smashing the world of experience, and then you have the sort of relativist, you know, I, I just know what I know on the other side, smashing the absolute, and everyone just kind of smashes and smashes, and it's a bit like a duel at dawn, like a Groundhog Day duel at dawn, where you just have to get up every day and fire at your opponent and then stop again. But there, there has to be some other debate which accepts the possibility, which I think both of you have offered these ways to do that, where you accept there is an order in language, there are terms we use, there are societal conditions we accept where we have to intervene and act. And we can be wrong, so we have to be malleable as well, I think. And in those spaces, do you think that there's what you would be happy to call objectivity? So Jane Bennett has a view of Darcy, and Elizabeth Bennett has a view of Darcy, and you say Elizabeth is wrong at the outset? Well, you'd have to say, so they're having a debate in language with terms in society. They're talking about the mores, the customs, the manners. They're sort of humans living in this human realm. The question would really be, are they referring their debate to a sort of absolute realm? And I think in this debate, 
that's my question really to the philosophers. Is that what we're saying? If we want objective morality, does it have to be redeemed by somewhere that goes beyond every human here? It's in a realm of gods or absolute scientific facts that just have nothing of the human. Or can we say there's a sort of societal set of mores that we accept and that we debate and they do change and we make wrong decisions, but they are present and they're within our very old languages as well, that we all speak with all these old judgments and values in them. Okay, that's super helpful. I, I do think, and you know, Simon and Savoy can correct me if I'm wrong, that if you look at the debates in moral philosophy now, most people don't think moral objectivism requires some platonic heaven where moral facts subsist. They are within the realm of thinking that we have certain practices in terms of which we can make moral claims that are true or false. Okay, so I think that should be the common ground here. Just a small correction. Yeah. You said, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Be sure I will correct you even if you are right. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Simon, is objective morality possible? Yeah, I think you've got to settle for a conception of objectivity along the lines I mentioned. Objectivity belongs to the process of self-criticism, of assembling evidence, of curiosity, of care in forming your opinions. Uh, one of the more um, frightening things, I think, about the contemporary world is that people will go onto social media, they'll go onto Twitter and so on, and voice opinions, sometimes very nasty opinions, very um, direct opinions, without taking any care over their verification. So you get um, conspiracy theories, you get false views and so on, promulgated with the same kind of fervor as any truths that there are. And that's not just about morality, but that's about uh, just about everything that's the subject of such uh, media storms. The um, point about ob um, a third world or a Popperian world is, I think, well taken, and uh, I've no interest in defending it, and I don't know anybody who really who does. Um, that is, it doesn't lie beyond us. The truth, the famous philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce, American philosopher um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, said that it was a mistake to try to define truth, but you could define the search for truth, which was the search for a point beyond which a question is settled, a, a point beyond which doubt does not arise. Now, in the case of ethics, I think there are plenty of points beyond which doubt does not arise. Uh, if, if I ask for a show of hands, how many people in this audience think that it's wrong to stamp on blind babies for fun? It's beyond discussion. Uh, to use a famous phrase of the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, if somebody chooses to dissent from it, he shows a corrupt mind, and I have no interest in arguing with him. In other words, it's something which, at for the moment, the ground stands firm. That's where we are. And then you can go on and see if we can formalize things, make more abstract propositions about morality and so on. And that always proves very difficult. But um, the basic judgments from which we start, you've got to start in medias res, in the middle of things. And those basic judgments from which we start, like the one I mentioned, those stand firm. Those are done and dusted. They're part, we can even talk about knowledge if we wish, and where we talk about knowledge, we can talk about objective knowledge, same thing. So I think the um, 
the polarized debate, which um, Joanna talked about, between relativists on the one hand and the uh, madmen on the other, the fanatics and the, the totalitarians, um, that can be put behind us. We've got to look for more nuanced issues within the general sphere of the things we know and the things we are pretty certain of. And then we can perhaps progress. If you start with the abstract ideas of objectivity and subjectivity, you'll get nowhere. Okay, brilliant. That's very helpful. So what I hear Simon saying is that we have some firm ground to stand on. Don't stomp on blind babies for fun. But what would you say to someone who pressured you and said, well, yeah, okay, but what about abortion? What about um, you know, contraception? What about the fact that we haven't made much moral progress through argumentation of the sort that you uh, champion? Is that a sign of something? Yeah, it's a sign that the question's very difficult and there are things to be said on both sides um, and things, plentiful things to be said on both sides. I mean, we, we, can all, we all know the basic moves in something like the abortion debate. Um, people who defend abortion don't defend infanticide, and yet it's a little difficult to be sure where you draw the line because the processes of life uh, growth are continuous. Um, so there's a, there's a difficult area there. Um, and, of course, there's a, a very difficult area when it comes to the conflict between let's say, a woman's right to um, take control of her own body and um, the alleged uh, right of the fetus to develop into a person, if that's what it can do. So I think there, you know, it's a going to be a difficult debate because there are worthwhile things to be said on both sides. Slavoj, do you want to tell us whether objective morality is possible, not in a yes. third world sense? Yes. But I in still yeah. will like, I don't know what's happening with me usually, I'm just butchering around, now I'm in a better mood and I try to find common language and I still think there is not a big difference between the two of us. Yes, I agree with you, what you, it ultimately in some sense of course, morality expresses our stances, but I would say, if you permit me using one of old examples of mine, that there has to be a minimum of, I'm very anti-Marxist here, Marxists usually attack, uh, you know, alienation. I think there should be a minimum of alienation here, that I don't present it just as my expression. That's why here comes my old example. Phenomena which always interested me are these phenomena, the first known example was, and I visited them in south of Greece, uh, so-called weepers. Women whom you pay to cry for you, to do the mourning for you. People would say, oh, how hypocritical and so on. No, I think this is a positive phenomenon. It gives you a minimum of distance. You minimally objectivize your stance. The same, I would say, goes, now you will say, but this goes for primitive cultures like, you know, in uh, ancient China, uh, in Tibet, those prayers. I love this idea. You put your prayer on a paper, you put the paper in a meal, 
uh, will you turn it around and to put it in Stalinist terms, objectively you are praying, even if your mind is on sex or whatever. But now you will say this goes for primitive cultures, AAA. Look at the greatest contribution for me of American culture in the 20th century. It was so-called canned laughter, you remember it, where laughter is part of the screen. It worked with me. I often uh, uh, came home in the evening tired as a dog. I put some stupid series on Cheers Friends and I didn't laugh uh, just like this, but at the end I felt released as if I laughed. <laughs> and I think I don't want to dismiss this as, I know our Marxist friend will say, extreme commodification, racification. No, there has to be this minimum of ritualistic alienation. You do a ritual. And I think it was shown, I will not take too much time very briefly, it, our reaction to pandemic, how? This proper level of minimally objectified mourning didn't function and it was mostly limited precisely on these hysterical outbursts on, of course, on Twitter, on Facebook and so on and so on. So, uh, incidentally, speaking about Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, you know, you have a nice ambiguity there. What's Usually it's taken, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, Jane has prejudices against uh, Darcy and uh, Darcy, Darcy has too much pride. But you know that I read an excellent reading which turns it around. But mine, okay. mine, thank you. It's your reading <laughs> or what? <laughs> no, okay. I don't so think it's original to me. Yeah, it's <laughs> very nice. Okay, quickly, quickly, uh, quickly. Uh, 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 you know, when we oppose relativism, moral historicism, relativism and, uh, and uh, uh, this, uh, fundamentalist objective morality. Did you notice that if you take absolutely dogmatically objectivist morality, like some religious fundamentalists, it's the most distracting relativism that you actually introduce into social life. Because no argumentation counts, it's just a pure uh, conflict. Quickly, quickly. At some level then, would you agree or not? Very limited level. But I think at some level, a little bit of moral dogma, dogmaticism, could be helpful. What do I mean by this? Something very simple. Like, there is maybe some progress, conditionally, in this fact. I read somewhere a very good feminist point that measured by today's standards, feminist and so on, 80 to 90 percent of the sex till the 20th century would be considered rape by today's standards. So isn't there nonetheless a progress when certain things are accepted in a good sense dogmatically? Like I would like to live in a society like this, where you don't have to argue, you shouldn't torture people, women shouldn't be raped. If you need to argue for it, it's already, you are already losing something. This is why what horrified me is that, although, uh, who did this, Dick Cheney or who, and then Trump, you remember how some 10, 15 years ago when, all of a sudden, torture became a topic of debate. 
maybe if we do it in the soft way, water bore, uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. And even if the majority was opposed to it, this was even more horrible. It became a topic of debate, not to mention rape, who was, I always forget his name, he's not my best friend, some American senator who claimed there is no rape. Because for rape there must be penetration, there is no penetration without uh, the woman getting wet, which means she accepts. The moment we debate for it, uh, uh, we are uh, lost. Uh, uh, just uh, uh, the last thing, uh, when we talk about uh, objective research, I still think that here, this is philosophical problematic, maybe to you and to you. We should, what horrifies me most is examples when factual truth about just what is really out there uh, serves as clearly an instrument of something we don't agree with, like racism and so on. Like an example, if I were to be a pro-neo-Nazi German, I guarantee you that I could write a book full of facts, only facts, where I say, wait a minute, it's not so simple. Look at the statistic, 60% of journalists in early 30s were, were Jews, and so on, and so on. So the true question here, when we fight anti-Semitism, is not the question of objectivity. Are facts really like that, the way anti-Semite describes them? My point is, the moment you accept this as a topic of a debate, you sold your soul to the devil. Because que the question is not, are Jews or Palestinians today, whoever, are really like that. The true question is, why do the Nazis need the image of the Jew, the anti-Semitic image of the Jew, to sustain their world view? So there is, some, that is for me the tragedy, the most dangerous propaganda for something which is obviously ethically reprehensible is the propaganda which at the level of facts can be, uh, can be mostly truthful. But that's another topic, just if you allow me to finish and then you can cut me off more later. The last point, when you, uh, uh, this, when you mentioned Yates, no? Okay, I have some problems with Yates. You know that he agreed with 34 racial laws in... No, no, Yates has huge problems. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. using him as an example of this view. Yeah. So yeah, for I mean, me, if, if I take over... But and would you condemn an artist for their problems? That's another moral question. I know I shouldn't ask questions, I'm but... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit of a... <laughs> don't tempt me into that direction. Oh, go on. The go only on. thing <laughs> I can promise you, if Yates goes to Gulag, but he would run a library there and have a relatively... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, now, yeah. more seriously, you know what worries me about passion and so on? Uh, is that today we witness, that's so horrible, a lot of false passion. What do I mean? You remember the Glasgow conference a year ago or when about uh, 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 global warming pollution. They were saying mostly the right things. I claim it meant strictly nothing at the level of conclusion. So today, 
Ideology, I still call it ideology, no longer functions in that old way, spreading lies and so on. We have a way to tell the truth which makes the truth inefficient. That's why, for example, I hate this modern uh, biennales, you know, Venice, Castle, the official ideology there is always anti-capitalist, like art is enslaved to market, we are all exploited, Eurocentric. And, but nonetheless, they fit perfectly today's uh, uh, capitalist functioning of the market. So beware, especially at the level of passing moral judgment, that partial truth, the most dangerous propaganda is the one which uses partial truth to sustain what we all should agree a global life. Sorry if I was too long. Good, no, no. What we have so far is we have Slavoj saying, look, it's really horrible to even put a topic on the table. I think we have Simon saying, well, hold on, let's be open-minded and tolerant. People have different views about things. Let's let them express their passions yeah, and have arguments about that. them. Why do we think there is Sorry, for the last time. Why do you think there is an opposition here? I thought you said that it's a very bad thing for us to put on the table certain topics. Right? That that's, that's, that's where the objectivity, but at least one point where objectivity but comes But I in. said the same thing. I yeah. said if somebody, <laughs> if somebody thinks it's okay to stamp on blind babies, especially blind babies, for fun, <laughs> um, then I don't want to argue with them. This is not okay. this is not something that should be in yeah, yeah. contention, which That's is yeah. basically okay. the yeah. same All thing. All right, so mm -hmm. the disagreement has to do with what kinds of topics can be properly put on the table. All right, um, so moral relativism is a view that allows you to put topics on the table. So, Joanna, will you tell us what you think about the I following question. I hope your question. next novel will be I like to stamp on blind babies, <laughs> the title. <laughs> I'll say you told me to write it. Do you um, think sorry, that moral relativism <laughs> is responsible for the chaos and confusion of current ethics? Uh, do you want yes or no or do you want <laughs> a bit more? Um, so I think I mean when I was talking about the dodgy Yates I think it's kind of inevitable that if you have these massive crises in a quite absolute moral order, then you're going to have this swing of the pendulum. And so you have people like the also quite dodgy D.H. Lawrence, who in 1922, exactly a century ago, says, he says, I really want to thank Mr. Einstein for giving us relativism because we used to be really pinned down. We we're all totally pinned. And now we can kind of buzz around and we all know that we're all different. The problem with that, and you're right about Yeats, he gets into this kind of, as does Lawrence, this sort of idealized individualism, which is sort of, you know, the, the individual has to be the absolute focus. And then you get this atomization and this despair because everybody's kind of, Lawrence has this metaphor of we're all buzzing around, but then everyone's kind of buzzing, you know, miles away potentially from everyone else. So these massive swings, again, we get these huge, swings where you end up with these polarities all the time. And I always think of Blake in this, and Blake's quite interesting because he, in the 1790s, he hates the moral order because, you know, it's, it's aligned itself with child labor, all these things that, you know, we would say are demonstrably bad with the slave trades. Again, I don't think we have to have a discussion about the fact that that's obviously awful. So he just says, whatever you people think is God, I think is the devil. 
and whatever you think is the devil, I'm really for the devil. I'm going to really go for whatever you think is evil. So he just, as you said about dogmatism, in a way he just inverts the whole thing and says, I've got my own system and it's just not yours. I, I so suspect if he really meant it. Usually when people say these false radical generalizations, they cheat. Somehow. Oh, do you think when people invert always? Yes. But you can't, I like mean, poets, what if somebody comes and brutally invert. rapes his wife and beats him? He would say, yeah, yeah, good, that's my no, new No, no, he doesn't mean it, but he doesn't uh, mean What like does he mean then? He do so he doesn't mean the old, well, I mean, I'm now the voice of, of Blake, but he doesn't mean your old good and evil. He means actually that good is rebelling against the moral order. He says, because the moral order is so mad and appalling, oh yeah, okay, good is okay, rebelling yeah. and sorry, sorry, bad yeah. is being meek and just sort of sitting back. So it's a bit like when you say about the people stamping on babies, y Blake would say it's obviously bad not to say anything and just sort of sit there being meek. But you know, the moral order at the time was praising people for being meek. Mm. So he's trying to say, don't okay. be meek if people sorry. are doing bad uh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I take your point about, you know, it's a bit easy to just say, I'll tip it backwards. But so, in terms of relativism, I think the question we have now is that it's become a cliche to be a relativist. Everyone says, I'm playing in the ruins and, you know, there's no meaning. And then you get people like Serkov for Putin using this relativism, saying, you know, there's no lies, so no truth, so politicians can't be judged. And I think inevitably then there's a huge reaction against that. And that's incredibly important. Again, though, it's about these pendulum swings. So I think part of the problem is these massive pendulum swings. And maybe we could go for what Owen Barfield was talking about, which who Simon and I have discussed, who had this idea that you clarify positions with these polarities, but you're always trying to find something between or beyond. So that might be, my. I think, my... That's really point. wonderful. Thank you. Uh, that kind of feeds into, I think, your views. So, Simon, can you give us a reaction? Um, yeah, could I raise something that you mentioned in the preamble, um, Ruth? You mentioned that uh, absolutism is somehow uh, having a comeback in the uh, mouths of people like Sam Harris and Peter Singer, with the two, I think you And Derek Parfit, the late uh, and Derek Parfit. Well, Derek is a slightly different kettle of fish, but I think Singer and um, Sam Harris are, have a, a very simplistic views about what a full-scale morality should consist in, because both of them are basically utilitarians, uh, which is a classical position. It just says, you know, the one measure of value is the greatest good of the greatest number. Um, so general happiness, that's all we care about. And um, Harris uh, uh, makes that even worse by thinking that science tells us that. Science tells us no such thing. Science doesn't determine your attitude to anything. It may require an attitude of wonder to the world and openness to e evidence and experience, but it doesn't tell you that the source of all value is human happiness or anything like it. His idea that science provides the authority behind which we can all shelter is, I think, a dangerous fantasy. Uh, and that's that's derives from my other reason. It's a question of what attitudes you have to things. Science tells you what you should think about some things, and does it very well, does it with great authority, but it doesn't tell you what attitude you should have to the things you find. Scientists might be as happy to uh, be studying a rattlesnake as to be studying a bunny rabbit, but it doesn't mean that you should have the same attitudes to the rattlesnake as you do to the bunny rabbit. In fact, if you've got children, I should hope that they 
don't have the same attitudes to rattlesnakes and bunny rabbits. So, so I think he's just on a hiding to nothing. Singer isn't quite as naive as that, uh, but again, he seems to be blind to the enormous amount of criticism that utilitarianism as a monolithic doctrine has encountered over the years. One of the obvious ones is that utilitarians have to struggle to make sense of things like gratitude and justice. These things fit, if at all, with, very, with great difficulty into the utilitarian calculus, because often there might be cases of injustice which actually work to the general good. Um, the classic case is something like um, if you can procure the execution of somebody who's innocent of a crime, thereby avoiding uh, social unrest, riots, um, pogroms, and so on, then you should do it. Uh, and a lot of people find that rebarbative and think, no, you shouldn't. You should never procure the judicial execution of somebody who's innocent of a crime. So uh, there are all these cases which are textbook cases of difficulties for utilitarianism. And I think to, to sail on as if they didn't exist is not really being objective about things. Okay, I couldn't agree more <laughs> as a, another professional philosopher. I think people here should know that although this debate has been framed as if you know, moral relativism is no longer fashionable, moral relativism in many circles was never fashionable. Um, there have been very strong arguments against it given by professional philosophers. So we mentioned Derek Parfit. Derek Parfit's view, here's, if you, if you buy his view, here's a way you can be a moral objectivist without being but, uh, nutty. I'm sorry. Yeah, hold on. Yeah. You can think that, you know, there are these, the two plus two equals four. That's an absolute truth. It's a necessary truth in mathematics. And stomping on blind babies for fun is wrong. That's also a necessary moral truth. We take foundational truths and then we mix in all of our contingent circumstances, languages, the way we think, our culture, and so on, and we work our way towards the best moral truths we can. And that's a way to be an, a moral objectivist. Okay, we're, we're now gonna move on to the third question. Um, and this is our final theme for the day. Will the trend towards objective morality continue? And if so, what impact would it have? Slavoj, you go first. I will really try to be, which is very difficult for me. Uh, uh, you know, here I am a pessimist, not a relativist pessimist, but a pessimist. The example to which we are obviously all returning, stamping on a blind child. I can imagine, not just imagine, from what I know, there was a civilization when this was not literally this, but something like this was experienced as part of your social duty. Ancient Sparta, where a child was, if it was crippled, it had to be so a quick correction, it's simply for fun. You yeah. do it just for fun, not because you're fulfilling a social obligation or playing a role. It just gives you your jollies. I put that in carefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that it gives mm. you, uh, sorry. Just for fun. I, here right? it's again ambiguous. Causing unnecessary suffering. Obsessions fun. is that you do something for fun, but mask it as your duty. That's what usually sadistic teachers do. They beat you and then they tell you, if you are a poor pupil, oh, uh, it's horrible for me to do it, it's just unfortunate. But let me go on. Moral relativism, uh, it is uh, 
the the problem we are getting today i hope we will all agree is that how should i call it local moral absolutism is getting combined with global relativism one of the things which made me infinitely sad is you remember when taliban won over in afghanistan they immediately made a pact with china the deal was very brutal man they called it respect for each other's culture but the deal was we do here what we want muslim fundamentalism but you do what you want with uyghurs with muslims there so nonetheless i'm here more open to what you were saying and i would say like this it's very humanist naive nobody would expect this maybe from me but i will just tell you a fact which i learned and then tested it not with both with one of the guys you remember general jaruzelski his kudeta in 1980 blah blah then they had at the end negotiations and one of the top negotiators on the other side was uh, uh, adam michnik now a big journalist there and so on uh, and uh, do you know first i thought it's a crazy rumor then i met at a round table adam michnik i asked him he confirmed already at that round table they simply how do you put it in this new age term there was a vibe between <laughs> them they became close friends met regularly in spite of differences and i find this so civilized now kaczynski brothers are mad they're ruining it but this basic civilization the big do you know when jaruzelski was then dying in the hospital valenza visited him there isn't it nice to have a certain level of civility which even when you have the fiercest debates it goes on so the thing with putin when it was mentioned is that be careful of putin he may appear to be and that's the most dangerous thing about russia today they may appear to be pluralist american imperialism liberalism will not control us but if you look at it closely they propose a new very religiously fundamentalist openly fascist i'm not using the term fascism with regard to putin due to some leftist interpretations his state philosopher is ivan ilyin from the 1920s who openly proposed the idea of russian uh, of russian fascism and so on let me stop with this and just one question maybe more for him than for you what about this argument i don't quite buy it but it's intriguing you must know it from people like jürgen habermas and some others not my favorite philosopher but who claim that uh, we cannot simply distinguish scientific exploration of facts and normative activity because science itself is in some sense a normative activity you follow a certain goal wi with a certain methodology with all freedom of argumentation in this sense they would say science cannot be simply opposed to i wouldn't say morality but normative activity it has a normativity of its own that's also their argument against uh, scientific naturalism that there is always a normative dimension in it 
I think the premise is true. There is always a normative dimension in any inquiry. There's a, if you're inquiring and you're um, being careful, then there'll be a way to do it and a way not to do it. There'll be norms governing whether the inquiry is being uh, well pursued. So in that sense, I think they're absolutely right. But of course, the, those norms may have nothing to do with morality in a wider sense. Um, you can have an immoral scientist who pursues his experiments with exemplary care and exemplary objectivity. Um, I think uh, Newton was a f an extremely unpleasant man. I'm, al I'm allowed to say that. He was a member of my college. Um, but uh, he was. And yet, of course, he was one of the greatest, probably the greatest scientist that Britain's ever had. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not moral norms that dictate how you pursue your science. It's basically what you're trying to find out. That pursues. That dictates how you pursue the finding out of it. So, um, I'm pretty sure, yes, that <laughs> Slavoj <laughs> thinks that there's more than just norms inside of an activity, like how do you put the beaker like this, and how, right, that he thinks that everything is political all the way down, but we're not going to go there, we're not going to go there. <laughs> we're going to give Joanna the last word, any comments? I guess just really briefly on science, and I, yeah, I think it's really interesting about the norms, absolutely, and this question, there's an interesting book um, writer as well, Martin Gurry, so the book actually isn't where he makes this point, but his book's called The Revolt of the Public. But he also makes a point about, about the pandemic, really, and it's this question, and maybe just leave it as a question, that say in the 14th century, the prevailing order is the religious order, and when the plague comes, people have this terrible crisis because they think God is angry and this is vengeance. And so they have this metaphysical crisis because they think, why has this order condemned us so much? And now we have... We're not governed by the clergy, but we have governments taking you know, their cues and advice from scientists. And that's obviously really brilliant, works really well in many, many cases. But there is a question then, if that fails, does it precipitate a kind of metaphysical crisis in that order? And I guess that's just a question. It's not my question. It's the sort of guri question, which I leave you with. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.